People can move away from painful things, in, at least to an extent, in some respects. Um, you, can, you can separate from a person if you no longer get on with them. You can move away from um, a place where you know, things you, you don't like happen. Um, you, can, um, you can throw away a, a pen that doesn't work but you can't throw away your head with a headache in it. There is something so kind of frighteningly personal about illness. It's something that happens to you. It's, it's in your body and you, and you, and there, you can't run and you can't hide. So, and I think that, that immediacy and that way in which it kind of takes over everything in your life is, is really important for our attempts to, think about our existence in the in in the broadest terms so i think i think it is important so i think if you want to study human existence and you want to do a serious job or if you want to talk about what the good human life is and you want to do a serious job you have to also contemplate the time that is as i said shared universal almost all of us will experience it when your your body begins to fail in mm. one of the many ways it can it can do that hello my geestlings this is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 93. And this episode is with Javi Carroll, who is professor of philosophy at the University of Bristol, where she studies illness and its relationship to philosophy. So Javi's research draws largely on phenomenology, which has come up a couple of times on the podcast before, but I think this is the first episode in which we really go deep into what it is. But it's a philosophical approach most closely associated with the continental tradition, and it relies heavily on experience, uh, perception, the way we, on a very uh, primitive or basic level, confront the world. So in this episode, we talk about the phenomenology of illness, and we begin with Javi's own illness, LAM uh, and how it affects her work. And we talk about that right off the bat. So I'm not going to say uh, much more about it now. But then we talk about all other sorts of things in this, this universe. We talk about the difference between illness, sickness, and disease. We talk about Freud, uh, breathing, and breathlessness, how illness can be a philosophical tool, and a lot more. So reviews, likes, subscribes, please. I appreciate that. And you also might want to check out my totally unrelated uh, eating stream on YouTube and Twitch, Robinson Eats, in which I have a pint of ice cream for breakfast every morning. This morning, it was actually three pints of ice cream or a quart and a half of rainbow sherbet that was not actually very appealing. But now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Hobbit. Uh, before we get into some of the specifics of your work, I was hoping to talk about it a bit more, a bit more broadly. And most of your writing revolves around illness. And I saw that you were diagnosed in 2006 with lymphangioleomyomatosis. So just what is this condition? And am I correct 
that this diagnosis and the focus of your work are quite intimately connected? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, before I worked on philosophy of medicine, and in particular, the experience of illness, I was interested in death. And I wrote my PhD thesis. And then my first book was on the concept of death in Freud and Heidegger. And I was always really interested in trying to work out the relationship between, you know, being alive and, and being dead, or the way in which death, you know, marks the end of life, but also has a bigger role, role to play in, <clears throat> I guess, delineating and structuring life. And I, I think that insight um, has, has always stayed with me, the idea that life has a limit. Um, but what happened when I fell ill is that all of a sudden I had a really pretty kind of urgent existential concern with what was going on with with me um, <clears throat> and I wanted to not just theorize death and its relationship to life but also to theorize how we come to be dead right so the process of falling ill and becoming progressively ill and then dying <clears throat> and I think <clears throat> pardon me I think I really think of it as um, a set of questions about limits and borders and what I call uh, limit states or limit cases. So cases where um, somebody's life and somebody's body moves increasingly towards the death side of thing. And obviously that culminates with death, but also with end of life care. So what happens to people on the last two, three days of their life as life you know, ekes out of them. <clears throat> and I think there is a very developed tradition in philosophy of thinking about death, you know, dating all the way back to the Epicureans and the Stoics and um, e even before that. But what philosophers haven't considered in enough depth is the question, how do you get to that point? So what are the common features between the, all of the all, all these kinds of limits. So, so we're temporally finite in that we all die at the end, and that means very specific things to what human life is. <clears throat> For example, it's it's delimited by by this finitude, but we're also finite in other ways. We're finite in our possibilities, and we're finite in the sense that our our bodies and our minds, to an extent, are very vulnerable. So I see in some ways as a continuation of my earlier work on death, in other ways, uh, a continuation of my work on phenomenology and, and on embodiment. Um, and I think illness is just the most fascinating and largely still uncharted territory for philosophy um, because, of these, because of these features, because it contains illness is almost always a set of limits illness is almost always, or in cases of serious illness, at least related to death. And illness is of course, very, very intimately connected to our modes of embodiment. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I guess what happened was that I always had slightly morbid interests, um, but really my overwhelming sense when I was diagnosed was, was really just being thrown into a vast and, and you know, um, very, very deep ocean and needing to find some kind of philosophical footing to 
help me sort of navigate those those choppy waters. And I think that's one of the duties of philosophy is to is to provide that for us in in times of of existential distress like the one I I experienced. Mm -hmm. Well. <clears throat> With the exception of some historians of philosophy, I think you're the first philosopher I've spoken with on the show who works more squarely in the continental tradition than the analytic <coughs> tradition. And I can already tell that not just because you've mentioned phenomenology, but the way that you talk about philosophy. Like when you say you were cast into a very vast and deep ocean and you needed uh, philosophy to help you find a footing. A logician doesn't really talk about their philosophical work in quite this way or navigating the choppy waters. But I'm curious, because, like I said, I haven't talked to a continental philosopher about this. Just how do you conceive of the difference between the continental and analytic traditions? And what attracted you to work in the continental side? Oh wow, that takes me uh, a long way back. I mean, back in the in the nineteen nineties, there was this big. I don't know. Actually, I don't know if it was big, and I don't know if it was particularly meaningful. A sort of divide, perceived divide between analytic philosophy and continental philosophy, and I think that kind of distinction really just shortchanges all parties to the to the debate. Um, there are different styles of writing for sure. They come or rely upon different traditions. Um, but in a way, they the questions they want to answer, the philosophical issues they grapple with are, are the universal ones that I, I don't think any philosophers would disagree on. Questions about meaning, questions about value. Um, and then obviously all the specific, you know, philosophical disciplines relating to, you know, the, the special sciences and you know philosophy of science and <coughs> and so on i don't think it's a hugely useful distinction okay i think you know most philosophers really appreciate clarity um and that's something that in some styles of continental writing are is 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 more tricky to obtain but I think now we have such a rich secondary literature, say on Heidegger or Merleau-Ponty or, or Husserl, where I guess philosophers who are kind of analytically trained or, or write in a very clear manner, like say Dan Zahavi or, um, or Matthew Radcliffe, write in a very, very clear and accessible to the Anglo-American ear, I think, um, write about these ideas from 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 that perspective. So, so 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 I don't know that thinking in those terms um, has been hugely fruitful. I'm trying to think of back to the '90s and how people maybe felt they had to sort of align with one side in the divide. I don't think that was particularly fruitful, and I think there are a lot of um, a lot of philosophers who who had an interest in both or had an interest maybe in logic and in political philosophy uh, or in philosophy of maths and history of philosophy you know there's mm -hmm. there's there's no we don't we don't need to restrict ourselves in in what we choose to take an interest in 
Um, so I think rightly, in my opinion, that kind of divided, more or less kind of stopped being mentioned and isn't really much of a, I haven't come across in recent years, people uh, writing about it and saying that it's, it's a very interesting or very, a very pertinent distinction to make, say, within, within philosophy. Well, since you just mentioned Husserl, one last question I have maybe before we get into some of the specifics, uh, I'd like to talk about a bit about phenomenology, which you describe as a philosophical approach that studies how we encounter the world and other people. And my only experience with phenomenology is a couple of lectures I sat in on about Husserl. Uh, where I, I mean, what I got out of this, because it was a few years ago, and I only lasted a couple lectures, even though I thought I still thought it was very interesting. Um, well, I took phenomenology to be quite basically an investigation into how we perceive and experience the world that takes as given, uh, I guess this is sort of repetitive, only our experience, but only maybe our sense data or our, our feelings, this sort of thing, rather than trying to draw upon science, uh, logic, or other, uh, I guess, yeah, other domains of knowledge. Can you tell me how close that is to how you conceive of phenomenology and maybe how it's changed since Husserl? Yeah, so, so I think, again, going back to or thinking about unhelpful divides, there's this, mm -hmm. I guess, this this idea that if you champion um, experience and perception in the everyday sense of experience and perception, then you're somehow devaluing science. And again, I don't think that's true at all. I think one argument made um, by Husserl, for example, and others, other phenomenologists is to say, we shouldn't take for granted the primacy of the scientific or objective or third person point of view. Now, they're not engaged, they're not epistemologists, they're not asking where does knowledge come from, even though that's a, a valuable question in its, in, its, in its own right. I think what they're trying to do is to say, when we look at what a human being is, what, what it does, what we do primarily is experience and perceive and how we, that juncture of perception in the world, or how we come, consciousness comes to encounter the world and to encounter other consciousnesses, is, is the basic stuff of phenomenology. Um, the idea, one idea that um, Husserl had, at least in part of his career, was the idea that we don't need to consider the reality of objects outside ourselves, primarily because that is the realm of the sciences. So you say, oh, you know, what is what is this cup? What is it made of? Atoms or whatever? That's 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 a sort of empirical question. But the philosophical question, or the, the transcendental question, would be: How does consciousness need to be set up in order to allow me to perceive that thing as an object? So you're bracketing, if you like, the whole debate about the reality of the objects or the reality of the external world in favor of the focus on how that perception, that encounter takes place. 
Now, again, you could say, well, that's also an empirical uh, encounter. That's also an empirical investigation. But, but philosophers, phenomenologists distinguish themselves from psychologists because they're not interested in the empirical how, the mechanics of, say, visual perception, right? That's what empirical psychologists do. Rather, they're interested in what, uh, what are the conditions of possibility, if you like, for that kind of act, act, perceptual act to take place. So it's transcendental in that sense. It's, it's non-empirical in that sense. And <clears throat> it really tries to cash out, I think, the domain of everyday life that is very much kind of worthy of examination. So I think philosophy, if you go back, I don't know, 100, 100 years and a, and a bit, was much more closely aligned to psychology um, before, before empirical psychology was as developed as, as it is today. And, and I think that basic idea that um, we should be metaphysically modest and we should study phenomena, we should study things as they appear to us and leave the study of what those things really are to, to scientists. I think that's a kind of legitimate phenomenological motivation and if you like a kind of uh, the very kind of rough outline of what a phenomenological project might look like. Yeah, no, I, I sympathize with that as well there's one important word you used a couple of times that I want to make sure that I understand what it <clears> means and it's transcendental. I think like one thing you said was uh, you called it the, the transcendental question, how um, consciousness has to be set up for us to perceive the external world. Maybe I got some, some words wrong, but is from context, I, I'm just gathering that transcendental uh, has to do with um, the mind uh, transcending some divide between us and the world and getting at the world. Is that what transcendental refers to something like that? A little bit different. I mean, that, that would be okay. trans transcendent. Transcendental means it has to do with the conditions of possibility. So, um, you know, very, very similar to kind of the Kantian project of, of saying, you know, what has to be in place for us to experience the world and the answer, well, space and time. So transcendental has to do with a, a set of kind of preliminary questions of what are the uh, conditions that enable us to, say, experience the world in a certain way or to have certain perceptions. Um, so, again, the kind of <clears throat> one type of response would be to say, well, we have to be able to experience things with, within space and within time. Um, and there's, there's lots of other similar um similar responses that kind of cash it out a lot more but i think really the idea of um the phenomenology it started from this kind of transcendental project if you like but then other strands kind of came into existence uh that you could call applied phenomenology embodied phenomenology phenomenology that very much focuses on first-person experiences as being particularly significant for particular aspects. So, for example, in my work, I'm very interested in the experience of illness, of how people experience their own illness from the first-person perspective, but I'm also interested in how people experience 
the illness of close ones, so from the second person perspective, and certainly how the third person perspective, if you like, of medical science has this kind of ongoing interplay with these two perspectives. Um, <clears throat> I think that's useful when, when we try to understand not just what it feels like for me, qua the ill person, but also what it feels like for the physician who is looking after me, for the person who cares for me and my family and so on. So I think really interesting things came out of phenomenology as a, as a tool, if you like, for the study of particular human experiences. Now, there's some people who are saying, you know, this is so far removed from the original Husserlian project that you shouldn't really call it phenomenology or that it's been watered down or that it's nothing more than um, what you do anyway in qualitative research. You ask people, what was it like for you? Um, I don't have a, I don't have a strong view. I mean, I think the one thing that phenomenology does, which qualitative health research, for example, doesn't do is um, give you concepts with which to understand and study the experience of illness. So there are important differences. Um, but I do think that in, in this kind of applied form, I think this there's a very powerful um, kind of framework or, or research kind of setup that privileges the first person experience that wants to study the reality of that experience in, in as much detail as possible and is hence maybe, you know, useful as an empirical method, but also is very rich in its concepts. And I think that's the thing that makes philosophical phenomenology, as some people call it, very, very, uh, very potent. Hmm. Okay, well, that was that was really helpful. I think disambiguating or, or clarifying the terms is always a really nice way to start. And in that same spirit, I think, I mean, we've gotten into some specifics, but I think pinning down some more terminology would be very helpful. And even in ordinary life, when we don't have to be precise about terms, I'm, I'm not always sure where to draw the distinction between like disease, illness, sickness, malady, and um, other terms of that ilk. So how do you distinguish illness from all these others? And why do you, why do you call it the phenomenology or conceive of it of conceive of it as the phenomenology, phenomenology of illness rather than the phenomenology of disease or sickness or something else? Or is it just an arbitrary choice? No, no, it's it's actually, I think, a very key distinction. So you're right to pick up on it. So within how I think about it, how I formulated it, disease uh, relates to the physiological or biological realm. So we are bodies that are, on the one hand, material, physiological organisms, if you like, and what happens, how we define diseases, disease is just, you know, a physiological dysfunction or a, a problem, uh, a lesion that arises in, in one of the many systems of that physiological body. Now, of course, we're physical bodies, but we also have consciousness. <coughs> we also have an experience of what it's like to have this dysfunction or lesion. And illness is the experience of having a disease. So uh. 
we don't have two bodies. We have one body that has these, this dual aspect, right? It's a physical object amongst objects in the world. Okay, it's a little bit unique because it's a physiological or a biological object, a biological organism. But we also have the, the vantage point of that body also having an experience of itself. So, and I think it's important to have that distinction because the experience is always an experience of illness. So a, a disease process in the physiological body will give rise to an illness experience. Um, and the reason, it, one reason it's important is because, for example, in the clinic, the physician or health professional will be very focused on the disease aspect. But for the ill person, they don't care what's going on inside their liver or kidneys, right? They care that they feel pain, that they feel discomfort, that they're disabled, that they can't, um, you know, go on holiday where they want to go or they can't work or do sports or whatever, right? And it's, and it's that level. I mean, what ultimately bothers people is their illness. What they ultimately experience is their illness and not their disease. So it's a useful distinction because it helps explain some of the communication problems in the, in the clinic. Now, the term sickness has been adopted by some philosophers to denote the kind of social level of, 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 of disease. So the way in which um, being diseased can be used as an excuse to explain why somebody can't work or why somebody behaves in a particular way. And the <coughs> sickness refers to kind of the social level or the arrangements we make, for example, to give people sick leave or to recognize somebody as sick and so on. Um, sickness is used a lot less. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's how I'm using it within phenomenology. Other philosophers of medicine use all of the terms interchangeably, including malady and some of the other ones you, you mentioned. But it, mm. it's really important to know what you're, you know, when you're reading stuff in philosophy of medicine, what the terms actually mean, as you rightly point out. So before I ask you, I guess, quite broadly, just what the phenomenology of illness is like, I have one other maybe methodological sort of question. And what comes to mind to me uh, is Frank Jackson's Mary's Room experiment in which this woman, uh, she's raised in this white room. She has all the physical uh, information available to her about color. Uh, and then she walks out of this room and sees red for the first time. Does she learn something? And the intuition, though Frank has, uh, he no longer, he has repudiated the thought experiment. The intuition is that you learn something that's ineffable, that just can't be conveyed by uh, physical information and, or by words. It can't be captured physically. And what I'm wondering is, is there some limitation to writing about phenomenology to what it feels like uh, to have an illness yeah that yeah that like you you just can't get to what it feels like <laughs> through words um again that's a, that's a that's a super question it's very poignant um so there's a few things to say in response i mean 
I guess in the case of Mary, the point is that Mary learned something new by having the experience that she couldn't learn from third person uh, uh, attempts, third person knowledge, right? So yeah. knowing the physics of, you know, um, of, of colors, the, the, the physics of, of light and refraction, um, the, the neurology and, um, you know, ophthalmology behind color vision. The idea is that all of that stuff simply can't give you the, what it's likeness of the, the experience of seeing red, seeing the color red. And I guess saying to somebody who's never seen the color red, I can't really explain to you what it's like. Um, that's not quite the same as saying something is ineffable and I've got I've, I've got a profound sense that illness is not ineffable. Um, I think we have a lot of words in our language um, and that there are literally tens of thousands of very worthwhile pathographies, so books that people have written or autopathographies about their illness experiences that are not difficult to to understand that you, to to read and even empathize with and and relate uh you know mm. none of us are strangers to adversity mm. i also think that there are ways of depicting illness that are not limited to words so it could be visual art could be video diaries uh it could be a piece of music right people over the years have tried to um get people who have all sorts of health conditions to try and convey their experiences in other kind of using other creative processes, using visual stuff or audio and, and so on. <clears throat> so I think as philosophers, we're very committed to words, right? We think words work really well. Yeah. And I think they also work really well in the experience of illness. Hmm. Um, what I'm less sure about is when we think about the really liminal experiences, really end of life, yeah. um, okay. that seems to be to me to be much, much harder to relate to because there's such a enormous um, difference in your state of consciousness and also in, in the fact that you're to an extent aware of the fact that these are your last hours, days, whatever. And I think that's a, 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 a very unique and, and, um, morally demanding uh, type of experience that I don't think we can relate to very easily in our kind of everyday Friday afternoon sitting with my cat type of uh, type of reflection. Hmm. But but I also think that all of these attempts to to share the experiences have a really valiant motivation, right? So illness is something that's almost universal. We all fall ill at some point and we're all or the vast majority of us will die of an illness <clears throat> so i think wanting to understand and study that experience this because it's so universal and it's so fundamental to our way of being as as vulnerable you know organisms that it's really worth trying to you know focus our our minds and try and think a little bit about about what the negation of health might be or what the absence of health might be like well i have in mind now another more concrete example to push back a little bit uh so 
I know that you've written about transformative experience, L.A. Paul's transformative experience. And I've, uh, Lori's been on the podcast, so we've talked a lot about it. And she frames the problem from a decision theoretic perspective. How are you supposed to, for example, decide whether or not to become a parent if having children, the very act of having children totally changes who you are as a person and it's you can't rationally make that decision because your values will change upon making that decision and so that's not where i'm going with here but how for example can i know what it's like to be you and to have lam if i've if i if i've never experienced that Mm -hmm. and i wonder what is phenomenology a way of distilling that experience and conveying what it's like to me uh or what what is what's phenomenology's role in maybe bridging this gap uh, this transformative gap yeah um again another another very very well put point i think phenomenology can be useful in the applied sense okay so just in the maybe less philosophically interesting sense of saying you just go to people and you say, well, what was it like for you? And if you ask enough people, what is it like to have end-stage renal disease? You end up knowing a little bit about it, okay? And knowing a little bit maybe about the variations and the idiosyncrasies and the different ways in which people, different people experience the same disease or the same illness. Um, now, I think philosophy or f- philosophical phenomenology can go a lot further than that. Because I think there are certain concepts that are really core to understanding illness experiences generally. So they encompass somatic illness, but also, I think, to a large extent, psychiatric illness. So, for example, the idea of loss. So S.K. Toombs wrote um, a famous paper in the late 80s on illness as a, as a series of losses. She says, look, you lose your integrity, integrity, you lose your wholeness, you lose your sense of you know, being an active agent in the world. you lose all of these things. Now, that's not a symptom you would report to your doctor, right? So the idea here is that you lose an aspect of life, your freedom maybe, your ability to be with other people in an unhindered way, um, your ability to to plan your your goals as you see fit. Um, And what's interesting about these is that they also really shed light on how things normally are, the stuff we take for granted. So I never thought of my bodily freedom until it was no longer there, right? Mm -hmm. I never thought that, you know, getting up, getting dressed, walking to the shop and coming home carrying two heavy bags of groceries was a particularly um, fulfilling or amazing activity. And now when I can't do it anymore, I look at people sort of walking uphill and talking on their phones or chewing gum and I think, oh my God, how do you do that? You know, it's to yeah. me, it seems like an, an impossible, well, a very uh, amazing achievement. So it's that perspectival shift. And I think once you start thinking about it, what happens in illness, what changes in illness? So for example, what you were saying about trans- it being a transformative experience, how do... Um, how, how am I personally transformed by the illness? So how do my values change? How do my goals change? And, and they do change. I mean, I, I'm 
confident in saying that I think illness is one of the prime examples of a transformative experience, except that it's not elected. Um, in all of these ways, it's the this kind of um, richness of concepts that lets us bit by bit unfold and reveal and uncover what illness does to the body and to somebody's life as a whole, but also what was there before that that may have been tacit or taken for granted or transparent, as Sartre famously um, uh, described health. Um, so health is just your body being transparent to you because it's just doing what you want it to do. And you're not even questioning or feeling gratitude or um, celebrating it. You, you, you just That's just what it does, right? You want to scratch your head, so you lift your arm and you, you scratch your head. <clears throat> but it's the absence of that that um, allows you, for example, to see how freedom is actually not made necessarily solely of big decisions, like the freedom to choose where I want to live or um, what profession I want to have. But the freedom could be of a very minimal sense of saying, I have a freedom to go for a stroll after dinner. And that stroll is 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 unbounded. It's it's not limited by my um, my physical frailty or my my physical the physical demands of my body. So I think it's it's a really important tool for studying the everyday, because again, it's only when something is absent or is taken away from us that we just we can see what role it played when it was still there, but. Um, largely implicit or tacit to us. I'm very struck uh, as you speak by some of the the use of figurative language and the almost literary way with which you describe things. So you, you say that you with illness, you lose your wholeness or your sense of, of unity. And I know that you say, well, you said earlier that there isn't really a useful distinction between continental and analytic philosophy, but I still think, and, and you said that the, the styles have shifted and there is more of a focus on clarity, at least in the secondary literature. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a, a, a very different sense of style to the way that you speak about philosophy than... Uh, an analytic philosopher does. And is, is phen phenomenology then, or the way that you write about it, or people talk about phenomenology, is it much more literary? Is that one of the ways in which it gets you, it bridges this sort of transcendental divide, or the transformative divide and, and enables you to experience what other people are experiencing in the same way maybe that we sorry, this has been unclear, but we, we can experience what other people are experiencing through literature. Yeah. I mean, I think language, again, language is, is very, very potent. I mean, um, you know, you don't have to be a young child in 1950s India in order to read, you know, Indian literature from that period, you know, I mean, it, it relates to a really, uh, you know, very developed debate within medicine itself when, you know, there's there's been this kind of 
demand to say, oh, health professionals have to be empathic and to try and understand what empathy really means. And, and of course, you know, you can't truly experience what the other person has experienced. But I think, you know, we've all had painful experiences. And I think if you set, if you, if you put your mind to it and you say, okay, I really want to understand what people with cancer are going through. Usually people are motivated to do that when somebody they know or somebody close to them is diagnosed with cancer <coughs> and they want to be helpful. But that's not the only motivation or the only reason. Again, so I think it's important for us to train our minds on this, on this very question as preparation for the day will come for, as I said, almost all of us and we will fall ill. And I think there is a lot of conceptual and philosophical preparation that you can make for that. You know, look at the Stoics um, telling us to, to, to be prepared for the day that adversity will, will hit us, adversity of, of whatever kind. And I think illness is a unique kind of adversity because I guess because it happens to, to you, as it were, right? So if, I think, you know, people can move away from painful things, in, at least to an extent, in some respects. Um, you, can, you can separate from a person if you no longer get on with them. You can move away from um, a place where, you know, things you, you don't like happen. Um, you can... Um, you can throw away a pen that doesn't work, but you can't throw away your head with a headache in it. There is something so kind of frighteningly personal about illness. It's something that happens to you. It's, it's in your body and, you, and, you, and there, you can't run and you can't hide. So, and I think that, that immediacy and that way in which it kind of takes over everything in your life is, is really important for our attempts to think about our existence in the, in, in the broadest terms. So I think, I think it is important. So I think if you want to study human existence and you want to do a serious job, or if you want to talk about what the good human life is and you want to do a serious job, you have to also contemplate the time that is, as I said, shared, universal, almost all of us will experience it when your your body begins to fail in one of the many ways it can it can do that hmm. i think this was in your book phenomenology of illness but you write and you've already indicated this in our conversation that illness has it it can play a role in philosophy and not just as an object of study or a subject of study but as a tool and one of the ways in which it does this that you pointed out that I found particularly compelling was that it can challenge certain received views, metaphysical views about space and time. And correct me if I, if I misinterpreted something there, uh, but I think that's what you wrote. And I wanted to ask you how it does this. So I think there's a few things that happen. I mean, first of all, there's, again, a, a very rich empirical literature on what happens to people's experiences of, of space and time um, 
in illness and also in other instances, I'm thinking of uh, Drew Leder's book um, where he, he talks about illness, but also about incarceration and solitary confinement. And Sean Gallagher also wrote about the experience of solitary confinement. We know that we can tinker with people's experiences of time in, in a lot of different ways. And I think what illness does, it, it does change your sense of time in a, in a number of respects. I mean, first, um, there's the question of what sort of prognosis you have. <clears throat> and I should add, I'm using illness here as sort of shorthand. I, I, when I say illness, I don't mean like spraining your ankle or having a cold for two days. I mean, it, illness that is serious and life-changing or life-limiting. So the prognosis might change your sense of time because maybe you thought, you know, life was a, a long and gently flowing river, but actually you think, no, now it's it's really urgent that I say these things, that I write these things, that I talk to these people, that I do these particular things. Um, so time can become more salient and more more urgent and more pressing in its in the way we experience it, for sure. Um, other people like Matthew Radcliffe have written about the experience of time, for example, in a, a mental disorder like depression, the way it can become much slower or much faster, the way whole days can sort of rush past without us even noticing them, or the way time slows down to painfully <coughs> slow trickle. Um, similarly, the experience of space, again, so I became really struck by the way in which we use um, concepts to describe kind of shared norms. So for example, if I say to you, um, where is your nearest shop? And you say, oh, it's just around the corner. Just around the corner is a very imprecise term, right? Just around the corner yeah. to be 10 meters and it could be 500 meters. But now, <coughs> this kind of term is usually taken to indicate that we have a shared understanding that it's, that it's within easy reach. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. if you're if you're unwell, yeah. um, or if you need a wheelchair to get around and the shop has steps in it, it's a completely different proposition. So I think what happens is that, you, of course, your, your sense of space changes. Um, so again, I remember a time when the world was just just out there for me to walk into and experience. And then it became a matter of, uh, you know, choosing the flat path, avoiding hills, but still feeling very free to walk around. Then it became very constrained by how much oxygen I had to carry with me. And then it became almost impossible. And each time you do that, the whole, your whole environment, the, the kind of geography of your world really changes. So what I once used to think of as just around the corner, I now think of very differently. So one thing that happens is that, um, again, it can point our attention to the to these shared norms, the 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 backdrop, if you like, of of shared human understanding and activity, <coughs> and can illustrate to us how in illness you kind of depart from these norms, linguistically, but also in 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 other in other senses. So that's another important dimension that comes out of directly philosophically engaging with with illness. Now, I think you asked about illness as a philosophical tool. I think this was an example of how that could work across many domains, right? And I, I, I think I would use the, even use the term pathology and say that when we contrast the normal way in which we do things with pathological cases, 
what we're doing is we're, we're illuminating the pathological cases, but we're also shedding light on the normal cases that we normally maybe don't spend much time thinking about. So maybe only this morning you said to a friend, um, just, I'm just popping out to the shop around the corner. And your friend said, oh, okay, so you'll be back in five minutes. Yes. Uh, but now that kind of brings that practice into question. So I think illness and pathology more generally are really useful to help us reveal to ourselves certain everyday practices and to, um, you know, spell out their context, the, the how they're normatively laden or value laden and, and so on. So I think, yes, we can use philosophy to study illness, but we can also look at illnesses. This, I think just this really interesting set of um, insights that can be useful for philosophy. Yeah. So with this round the corner idea that you mentioned, so I, I think it's well understood that vague predicates like tall, for instance, are context dependent. So the word tall means something very different in a preschool than it does at the Icelandic strongman competitions. <laughs> and I, and is illness then a way in this instance, is it a way of say, we didn't know that beforehand that vague predicates are context dependent that just from the experience of around the corner, having a different meaning all of a sudden, now that we are ill, it reveals to us the context dependence of vague predicates. It might serve as a tool in that way yeah. and that it'll make. Well, and, and more broadly, the mm -hmm. taken for granted way in which we use shared norms, um, yeah. but, but also their limits to say, look, I mean, the, the norms break down here, so we shouldn't just, our starting point, which it often is in philosophy, this kind of tacit understanding that we're talking about normal, neurotypical, able-bodied uh, adults who are not old and not sick and not decrepit. And, you know, I think that kind of um, implicit standard in our philosophical thinking, that can also come into question <coughs> in saying, but look, loads of people don't fit that model most loads of people don't have health as the basis for their quest for a good life so it can it can just be used as a sort of um challenge or um kind of comparative test case to look at cases where we may have been too quick to generalize by using some sort of implicit sense of you know able-bodied adult or something like that mm-hmm well, one last question that I have about illness. You mentioned at the start of our conversation that your thesis was on Freud and Heidegger. And Freud, I personally find to be one of the most important and interesting characters of the last 150 years. Oh, wow. And, but in my circles that I run in, the, the mathy and sciencey people, he's been really rejected and, and derided by uh, my peers in this mathy sciencey area, which I think is, is totally wrong. But I haven't yet gotten to talk much about him on the podcast, though I hope to have tens and tens of episodes on, on Freud at some point in the future. But for now, 
granted he was he was very interested in mental illness does his work or any of your work that you've done on freud relate at all to the phenomenology of illness oh wow so interesting um i've got a picture of him right there um <laughs> i think some of the ideas are easily transported across for example the idea of internal conflict right which was I mean, in some ways, his real revolution is to say, look, we think there is this subject, there is this agent, this, this unified thing, but actually that's just the result of an internal struggle and conflict between the different agencies of, um, you know, within, within the mind. Um, and he uses the metaphor of, of a parliament and saying, you know, it's, it's just a what we end up seeing is a majority view or some sort of compromise that we reach. But it's not like, you know, the id is ever satisfied with the, the solutions that that um, that we see we see expressed as, as consciousness or <clears throat> or something like that. So I think the, the idea that within us there are different forces that kind of push and pull in different directions um is is one that could be taken into illness I'm, I'm only i'm just thinking about it right now because i've never been asked this before so um mm. uh, i i I'm, i might not be expressing myself as as clearly i think another one might be the significance of sexuality for mental life uh not just again not just in adults but also in 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 children um and the, the the potency of the of the the two drives, the sex drives and the death drive that he talked about in his in his later work, again are also a way of saying, you know, we are embodied creatures, we are we are human animals, and and that um, is very significant, I guess, in the case of illness, in, in appreciating and understanding our physical vulnerability. And our physical limitations and then i think a third area that i think is one where there is connection is if you think about his um, little essay on transience where he talks about how everything that we value is can be seen as shorn of its worth because of its ephemeral nature because it's it's passing he, he talks about a, a rose that you know blossoms for only one night and he says it's no he, that rose is no less beautiful than any other flower that would blossom for thousands of years. Um, so that focus on transience, on the ephemerality of things, is I think a very important piece <coughs> in the bigger picture of of the of human beings that I would like to ultimately develop, where they're they're prone to illness, but they're also the the um, they're also prone to other forms of adversity and affliction um, due to, you know, a political situation or a natural disaster. They're also um, subject to the, to the contingencies and the vagaries of life. And I think ultimately Freud and these, you know, reflections on illness and some other bits of work can kind of come together, at least that's what I'm hoping to do in the next few years, is to really think about how we are vulnerable, 
um, prone to, you know, to, to affliction in, in all sorts of ways and how the contingencies of life, of political life, of geopolitical life, of um, the life of planet Earth are um, control us to a much greater extent than we want to. And, um, you know, Freud famously talked about the, the, uh, the, Copernican, the third Copernican revolution, um, which, which was his view of psychoanalysis as, as a kind of ultimately a kind of humbling um, motivation, something that will help us see ourselves as not so central, as not so um, virile, as not so powerful, as not so in control of what happens to us. And I think ultimately that is, again, another insight that I think Freud would share with a phenomenology of illness as I, as I see it. I'd like to, in the time we have left, turn to maybe a bit more briefly, just talk about some of the other things you've worked on lately. Okay. And one thing you've been working on is breathing and breathness, breathlessness. And I looked at the Life of Breath project and I saw, at first I was wondering if, obviously the LAM is part of this, but I also thought maybe COVID might've been a reason this was on your mind, but I saw that this project was five years long, so it must've preceded COVID. But it, just in general, what is the Life of Breath project and what is the phenomenology of breathlessness like? Yeah, so that project very ironically ended in March, 2020. Ah, um, very it was, it was, it's almost completely pre-COVID. And what we tried to do in that project is I teamed up with um, Jane McNaughton, who's a physician and a medical humanities scholar in Durham University in the UK, and in a team of other people. What we tried to do was two things. One was a sort of um, demonstration of the usefulness of arts, humanities, and social science research to shedding light on a medical symptom. So the second was um, doing a research project that is focused on a symptom rather than on a disease. So traditionally, a lot of research projects uh, in um, in medical humanities are, you know, the history of diabetes or the history of um, renal disease or um, asthma or whatever. So individual diseases have been looked at and studied from the point of view of history in medical anthropology and so on. But we chose to look at a symptom and we chose a symptom that is, is particularly interesting first because it's so available to our consciousness so we have an awareness of our breathing we can turn our attention to it the whole time we can't turn our attention to our kidney function in any meaningful phenological sense <clears throat> unless we have a pain and that pain is not um, the experience of kidney function anyway um so we, and also because it's a symptom, but it's also connected to breathing more generally, which is phenomenologically and culturally and psychologically really, really interesting. So if you think about it, you need to breathe for everything you do, right? Even if you're just sitting there and working out a, um, I don't know, a, a mathematical problem, you're, you're, you're still breathing as you do that. And of course, you need breathing for a lot of the a lot of the things you do require us to use our breath in particular ways. 
So for example, if you play a woodwind or brass instrument, if you're a singer, if you're an athlete, um, if you're a diver, if you're a dancer, all of, all of our physical and athletic feats require us to engage with our breathing in a very serious way. And so we have something here that on the one hand is again, transparent, tacit, taken for granted. You don't normally think about your breathing. You just, it just happens by itself. But then also can be the focus of really intense scrutiny, for example, in um, you know sports psychology or sports physiology, when people try and understand how to improve your respiratory efficiency and so on. So we liked that, that it was really a nice juncture of a lot of things. There is um, a lot of metaphorical uh, significance that is attached to breathing. If you think about you know, how we think about the beginning of life as the baby's first breath, or the end of life of somebody taking the last breath or their last exhale of how air is metaphorically, but also concretely something that connects us, <clears throat> you know, we, sh we breathe the same air. Um, so we're thousands of miles apart, but ultimately, you know, the air pollution I produce here can affect you there. So it's also shared in this, in this political and, um, environmental sense um, and it's also a host to some very interesting um, kind of psychological phenomena so we know that one way to um, take stock of our emotional state is to pay attention to our breathing uh, so you're always told if you're getting a bit panicky try and slow down your breathing if you're anxious, try and count your breaths. Um, you know, if you do anything by way of any of those spiritual practices, meditation or pranayama or mindfulness, they all very much require a, a, a training that involves focusing on your breathing. Um, and there are other kinds of spiritual practices that involve, you know, divine breaths and stuff like that. But ultimately, we thought, here's this really interesting thing. On the one hand, some people are very, very interested in it. And again, sports, music, whatever. And it's a, it's a, it's a serious tool. If you, if you, if you talk to um, singers, their understanding of breathing is so sophisticated. Um, and on the other hand, something that, we, that is just in the background the whole time. And then you add to that the complexity of what I call pathological breathlessness. So breathlessness that you know, plagues the lives of many millions of people who have COPD or asthma or LAM or any other respiratory or cardiac condition. Um, and the associated problems uh, that come along with it. So one thing that is a very big problem in respiratory conditions is um, the kind of vicious cycle that emerges when people experience their breathlessness as very frightening or scary or something to be avoided and then they do less and then they become deconditioned and they become more breathless as a result because they're like, they've lost fitness. So that's a very real problem that affects people. Um, and then of course, there's this whole kind of area of um, end of life care where one of the biggest predictors of somebody's impending death is a marked increase in breathlessness that is usually appears in the last few weeks of, of life. Uh, whether the cause of death is respiratory or not. 
so for all of these reasons, it kind of fascinated us because it was understudied because when you talk to respiratory physiologists, they have an excellent understanding of the physiology of breathing. So the, the mechanics of the lung in, 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 ex, in inhalation and in respiration, how the oxygen gets absorbed through the lung tissue and into the bloodstream and how the CO2 gets expelled. Um, and it's a very, very sophisticated science. But when you measure how people breathe or how their lungs are working, you're not actually measuring breathlessness. Breathlessness is this entirely subjective thing. And there can be many instances where there's a mismatch, where somebody with good lung function reports feeling very breathless, maybe because they have panic attacks or because of something else. And people who, are, who have extremely poor lung function and are okay with their breathlessness. So it just seemed to us like this amazing juncture where there was so much to say, um, looking at literary and spiritual texts and religious texts, looking at the, the, the history of uh, respiratory tests and, the, uh, and lung function and its relation, for example, to race. So there was this um, misconception that um, um, African-American people have lower lung function than uh, white people. And that led to various forms of health inequality and health injustice. Um, so there's just a whole history in politics and um, what we tried to do was to show how disciplines like medical history, medical anthropology, philosophy, medical humanities can shed light on that. And then we tried to take all that and sort of talk to respiratory physicians and see if that kind of interested them or was relevant to their work or helped them in their interactions with patients. So anyway, sorry, that's a long answer to the question. Oh, the no, project. No, no. Uh, Very good. You mentioned literary and spiritual texts. One question posed by the Life of Breath project that I found compelling was how breath and breathness, breathlessness are represented in literature. Do you have any uh, thoughts about this or examples that come to mind that might be interesting? Oh, wow. Um... I think that the, there's the etymology of the word is different because it, in some languages, uh, the words breath and spirit are one and the same word. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, in Genesis 1, the Hebrew original talks about the um, this, it, it uses a word that can mean either wind or spirit or breath of God um, floating above the water before before God creates, you know, all these differentiations between earth and, and water and sky and earth and so on. So I think an understanding of the origins of this kind of spiritual significance by seeing how um, in many ancient traditions, breath and spirit and life were used almost interchangeably can help maybe understand our, our sensitivity uh, to, our, to our own breathlessness and how it might be accentuated in certain contexts. 
Um, another thing I think that is interesting is that it is very hard to depict and describe. And that's one of the things that when somebody is breathless, they're kind of out of air. So they, they don't really talk or shout yeah. or gasp. It's just a very underwhelming thing to, to observe. So trying to think of how people, um, how we can have a better understanding of this enormously frightening sensation. So again, try and think of a time where, um, you know, you tried to hold your breath underwater as a kid for as long as you could and how you get to that point where your lungs are sort of bursting and you really need to take a breath and how you would feel if you weren't able to take that breath. Right. I mean, that's, that's horrifying. That's really within the territory of, of torture. So again, um, if we think about how people have used the absence or the removal of the, the um, obstruction of breath in various so in domestic violence, for example, strangulation is a very, um, a very common practice. And one thing it conveys to the victim is I, I hold your, your life in my hand. I decide whether you live or die. Yeah. And similarly in other torture practices, it's, um, the, the waterboarding famously, the sensation of, um, of drowning, right. Is, 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 is generated. So there are many ways in which the, this experience is undoubtedly the most horrific one you you can have. And we're, I think we all remember Eric Garner and how that slogan, I can't breathe, became a sort of metaphor for a certain uh, political climate and, and the problems of, of racism. Um, and then I guess the last thing I would say is that often the depictions we see in mainstream culture are very, very um, inaccurate and are very damaging. So, you know, when people die, they normally don't just close their eyes and look like they've just fallen asleep. And a, a lot in general, I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of looking at hospital scenes in, in TV programs and seeing how um, horribly inaccurate they are. So I think the problem with breathlessness is that it's incredibly overwhelming internally, but on the outside, there's sort of nothing to see. And maybe that makes it very difficult to, to try and perceive and understand. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Javi. This has been really fun. And I've, I've learned, I've really learned a lot. Yeah. Sorry. I hope my answers weren't too long and, um, excessive in detail. No, they were, they were great. Okay. Well, thank you for inviting me and I'm glad it worked out. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.